well, this is the problem. First, you've got to kind of investigate and attribute responsibility and do that through the proper channels. That's been a very challenging thing for the OPCW to do. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. In 1993, governments around the world agreed to a landmark arms control treaty, the Chemical Weapons Convention. The CWC, as it is known, prohibits countries from building chemical weapons, using chemical weapons, and requires countries to destroy whatever stockpiles they may have. It is one of the most widely adopted international treaties. Only four countries have not yet ratified it. And overall, it's been successful. But there's been some notable exceptions in recent years. This includes multiple uses of chemical weapons by the Syrian government in the 2010s and the use of a nerve agent in assassination attempts against foes of Vladimir Putin. The way treaties like this work is that governments come together every few years for what are known as review conferences, in which they assess past progress and set priorities for the coming years. In the middle of May, members of the Chemical Weapons Convention gathered in The Hague for a five-year review conference. And that is where things hit a few snags, according to my guest today, Mary Wareham. Mary Wareham is the Advocacy Director of the Arms Division of Human Rights Watch. We kick off discussing the history and the successes of the Chemical Weapons Convention. We then have a longer discussion about the complicated diplomatic dynamics of maintaining an effective ban on chemical weapons use and development. So in preparing for my interview with Mary Wareham, I did my normal round of research, but I was surprised to find that there were precisely zero articles about the Chemical Weapons Convention Review Conference published in news outlets. So I decided to do something about it, and that's how this episode came to life. So if you appreciate the work that we do here at Global Dispatches, please make a recurring monthly contribution to the show. You can do so in three ways. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, you can make an in-app purchase. If you are an email subscriber to Global Dispatches, you can get a subscription through Substack, or you can just go to 
patreon.com slash global dispatches. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash global dispatches. We count on your support. Thank you. Now here is my conversation with Mary Wareham of Human Rights Watch. So let me just kind of kick off by asking, why are you attending the CWC RevCon? Why does Human Rights Watch have a presence there this time? I'm attending the review conference of the Chemical Weapons Convention because this is the first time that Human Rights Watch has been let in. We've applied through the accreditation process in the past and been rejected. So we put an application in a couple of months ago and it goes to a committee of governments who then decide. And the thing with this committee is that if two or more object to the NGO application, then you can be denied entry. And that's what's happened in the past. Countries such as Iran and Russia have objected to certain NGOs participating. And this time, somehow, Human Rights Watch was allowed through. So once you're allowed in, you've got to open that door and go in. (laughs) Do you have any idea of how you snuck through? I think they're asleep at the wheel (laughs) this time, objecting to several different non-governmental organizations, but we don't really have the backstory on exactly what happened. You know, you have to provide your record of work, including over the past year in the application process. And we did that kind of describing the follow-up that we've been doing to the use of chemical weapons in Syria in the 2010s. I guess that record was accepted and we were allowed through. Russia seems to be distracted right now. (laughs) So before we discuss what's happening at this review conference, can I just have you go back and explain what is the Chemical Weapons Convention and why was it created in the 1990s? So the Chemical Weapons Convention is one of the first what we'd call humanitarian disarmament treaties. It combines some measures with practical measures aimed at getting rid of chemical weapons, which had been used in the lead up to the negotiation of the convention, most notably by the government of Saddam Hussein in the Kurdish parts of Iraq and also during the Iran-Iraq war uh, in the 1980s, you know, causing a huge number of casualties and deaths. And that was part of the major catalyst behind the creation of the Chemical Weapons Convention in 1993. It follows on the footsteps of the Biological Weapons Convention that was negotiated much earlier in the early 1970s. And the prohibition treaties prohibiting for the Chemical Weapons Convention the use of toxic properties of common chemicals such as chlorine to kill and injure in armed conflict. But they don't just prohibit the use the Chemical Weapons Convention, it's a comprehensive prohibition. So no transfers, no use, no production, no stockpiling, and no assistance in any way with any of those prohibited activities. So it's a very strict regime that is remarkably universal. It's probably the most universal disarmament treaty out there with 193 countries that are on board. Only Egypt, North Korea, and South Sudan are outside of this convention. Israel has signed it, but never ratified. So it's one of the most widely adopted international treaties, like 
in general, but also one of the most widely adopted international humanitarian treaties in terms of prohibiting the use of weapons. But my understanding is that one of the unique features of the Chemical Weapons Convention is that it demands that its signatories and the countries that ratified it destroy their declared stockpiles. So they can't just transfer or sell it. They actually have to actively and proactively and verifiably destroy whatever stockpiles that might have existed when they ratified the treaty, correct? Correct. Yes. Stockpile destruction is a key feature of the Chemical Weapons Convention, and it's also one of its greatest success stories. All of the countries who have signed up to the Chemical Weapons Convention Some of them never had chemical weapon stocks in the first place, but they've gone through a formal process of declaring that through a transparency report. But several countries did. Russia is one of them. They declared to have destroyed their stocks in the last decade. I think it was 2017. There's only one country that is party to the convention that hasn't completely destroyed their stocks yet, and that's the United States, where there's a process underway to complete the process By the end of September is the deadline for the U.S. to complete the destruction of its stocks. And from what I've read, they seem to be on target for a variety of reasons. The United States, which possessed like by far the largest stockpile of chemical weapons over the last several years, it's just taken a really long time to destroy them all for like a variety of technical and political reasons. But there are two facilities in the United States, one in Colorado, one in Kentucky, that are on pace to destroy the last remaining American stockpiles of chemical weapons by the end of September, as you said. Looking forward, what are some of the key debates ongoing at this review conference? As you said, this is one of the more successful multilateral treaties in terms of the verification of the destruction of declared stockpiles. It's one of the most universal treaties with only three countries not signing it. What are some of the key discussions and debates ongoing in The Hague right now as countries gather to discuss progress made towards the Chemical Weapons Convention and what needs to be done in the future? I think that Syria has been a major issue for the Chemical Weapons Convention. You know, there was the use of chemical weapons in Ghouta in August 2013, which Human Rights Watch and others documented, resulting in hundreds of deaths, many children. Only a month after that, Syria ratified the Chemical Weapons Convention and became a state party and committed to abide by the strict prohibitions it then you know, struggled to declare and to destroy its stockpiles of chemical weapons and the facilities that had produced them. There's been a huge number of questions throughout that process. And then, of course, after signing up to the convention, Syria continued to use chemical weapons, both chlorine delivered in barrel bombs and improvised devices, as well as other types. So Syria They did kind of deal with it a couple of years ago in removing Syria's voting rights under the convention. So it wasn't at the forefront of this review conference. But I guess what was, was Russia. Russia likes to talk about how it has completed its destruction of chemical weapons, but then it has been implicated in the assassination attempts of the Russian opposition leader in 2020, and then the Kapil and Skipple in uh, Salisbury in the United Kingdom, people have pointed to Russia's use of Novichok agent 
in those assassination attempts. And this was something which kind of surprised me at the meeting, how many countries were pointing that out <laughs> and, you know, demanding that Russia respond to it. And Russia was just shrugging them off. There was not really a process to deal with Russia here at the treaty meeting, unfortunately. You're referring to the attempted assassination of Alexei Navalny and Sergei Skripal and, and his daughter, who was sort of like a bystander to it, who are all sickened by a nerve agent that is banned under the Chemical Weapons Convention. You know, everyone knows Russia did this. How is that fact just impacting debates and discussions? You're saying countries are accusing Russia of violating the Chemical Weapons Convention. Russia says we didn't do it. Is there any like recourse available within the CWC to hold Russia accountable? Well, this is the problem. First, you've got to kind of investigate and attribute responsibility and do that through the proper channels. That's been a very challenging thing for the OPCW to do and for the United Nations as well. They haven't really been mandated to do that. When it comes to accountability, I think that the states that are party to the convention would like to be able to deal with accountability through the framework that the treaty provides. But Russia says that this is not an issue for the convention, that it's an issue for the Security Council and that it's outside of their remit. And of course, it's convenient for Russia to be dealing with those accountability concerns in the Security Council because they have a veto (laughs) and a vote and can avoid accountability through that process as well. So very challenging to deal with it. And unfortunately, it wasn't dealt with this week. And I have to imagine that a key reason here is that presumably, like other kind of UN treaty bodies, that agreement is only able to be achieved through consensus. So you need all countries, including presumably like the major countries, to like agree to something in order for it to move ahead. There isn't like votes on things. These are negotiations that happen mostly by consensus. So Russia, I guess, would be blocking consensus on like the naming and shaming of Russian to violate the CWC. Yes. And this was the disappointing thing that's happened today on Thursday afternoon. Not all sessions are open and transparent. Much of this is, you know, put on the webcast and made public and non-governmental organizations, the Red Cross, the EU, the observer delegations can participate. But this is a convention where they like to shut the doors and go behind closed doors. So we don't get to see the debate often. But what has happened is that today they came back, the chair of the most important committee that was working on the outcome documents, the final report, the political declaration, and read out a statement saying that due to limited time available in the context of current global affairs, consensus was not reached on those very important documents. That's what you issue at a review conference. And they couldn't even agree on that. You know, I think the the wording there of the current context of current global affairs points to Russia being the, the reason for that. But there are, I think, probably other problematic countries. I mean, it's inevitable, isn't it, when you've got 193 countries on board this convention, about 140 of them here at the review conference this week. It's inevitable that that will happen. I guess the funny thing, though, was that at the beginning of the week, they still organized their meetings around old Cold War 
groupings. So you've got the non-aligned movement group, you've got the Western group, and you've got the Eastern Europe group. And they could not decide between themselves on who would be their office holders for the week. And so they went to a vote to decide on that. And it was down to North Macedonia, a Baltic nation, and Russia, and Russia lost that vote. But this was a procedural matter that they voted on. So it was fascinating because in my two decades of doing this work, I'd actually never seen governments vote like that in a disarmament treaty meeting. Often just the threat of a vote is enough to force agreement. But, you know, it's strange how governments will use votes on procedural matters, but not on substantive ones. So they didn't vote on those important documents that they were supposed to issue. Just to explain to listeners that in these kinds of UN negotiations, you typically have blocks of countries that group together to pursue like common interests. And you're saying that in the Chemical Weapons Review Conference, these blocks were kind of old, almost you know, Cold War era blocks. But typically, you don't have countries needing within a block voting amongst themselves as to who would represent that block. But because of the messed up geopolitical times that we're living in, the Eastern European bloc, like who would represent them in negotiations, came down to a vote between North Macedonia and Russia. And that's, to me, as like a UN nerd, that's just sort of fascinating, but also I think a good distillation of the geopolitical moment that we're in now. And I've seen that happen elsewhere, you know, in the context of talks on killer robots where the Eastern group had to nominate their representative for a meeting and Russia announced that it was leaving the group and forming a group of one. Apparently it wasn't possible for it to do that at the chemical weapons convention. So that was the outcome. They went to a vote. So typically at review conferences like this, and there are other review conferences in like the world of international treaties, like the non-proliferation treaty has like a review conference every five years. The goal of these conferences is to kind of assess progress thus far, but also give the body that oversees the treaty, in this case, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, kind of like marching orders for the next five years, set a strategic plan and some political objectives for the OPCW. But you're saying that because of Russia blocking consensus, that there is no meaningful outcome document that would set the OPCW's priorities in the coming years. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, we don't know that it was Russia to blame in this case because those meetings were closed and behind <laughs> behind the scenes. The work of the OPCW, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, will continue, you know, regardless of this outcome. They have their budget that's safe. They have their own kind of program of work for their big secretariat here in The Hague. They just opened a chemical chemtech center, which will hopefully help them to deal with the chemical threats of the future, which are considerable. But it's always good if the governments can give that political direction as well as assessment and put out a bold declaration of unity around the norm established against any use of chemical weapons. It is a real shame to see that outcome this week. But unfortunately, it's also indicative of the fragility of multilateralism at the moment. There's another meeting in Geneva at the UN 
the Convention on Conventional Weapons, another CCW, not CWC, if you want to talk in acronyms. And they're talking this week on killer robots, and they're facing exactly the same issue because of pretty much the same country as well. It looks like they will not be able to agree to an outcome document because they use consensus and because Russia is really exploiting that to ensure that there is no substantive outcome. So by the end of September, the OPCW will have completed one of its key core missions, which is to verify the destruction of declared stockpiles. And that'll happen when the last remaining U.S. stockpiles are destroyed. Going forward, what role do you see for the OPCW in terms of preventing the emergence of new chemical weapons threats? And where do you predict those threats to come from in the future? Before coming, I I took a look at the work that Human Rights Watch has been doing on the use of chemical weapons and chemical irritants including tear gas. And it's quite astonishing how many reports that we have issued about the abusive and and often lethal use of tear gas and other chemical irritants by law enforcement and security forces, especially during protests. And this is not, you know, use of chemical weapons that kill. These are chemical irritants that are are supposed to do just that, irritate you and, and kind of encourage you to leave the protest But this is kind of one area of concern. So it's not a chemical weapons issue, but I think it's one that bleeds over into the chemical weapons convention as well. Another one is just the emerging technologies, the fact that you can affix tear gas to a drone now and deliver that and potentially deliver it on the battlefield. That's a pretty dangerous initiative And one that kind of when you look at the other examples of emerging technologies is something that the Chemical Weapons Convention really needs to stay on top of. And it it will stay on top of it through the, the Chemtech Center and through the work of the OPCW. But really, there's a strong need to look at delivery systems that are being used. And some of them are dual use for use in warfare and also in law enforcement and policing. So that's a kind of keeping an eye on the tech side, but also ensuring that interpretation of the treaty's core provisions is clear to all of the states in the face of these emerging technologies. That's a kind of key issue, I think, for the Chemical Weapons Convention. And and I guess the last one I'd, I'd like to highlight is, you know, once you destroy your stockpiles, and, you know, governments who want to say we're, we're free of chemical weapons now, but for many countries, they're not free of chemical weapon victims, not for many countries, but I'm, I'm talking about Iran and about Iraq, about Syria, about, you know, victims of chemical weapons have got lifelong needs that will have to be met. And the kind of core mission for the treaty and for the OPCW is to ensure that their rights are met and that there are no future victims I've spent much of my career working with victims of landmines, of cluster munitions and other explosive weapons, and they are amputees, people who have been blinded and lost their hearing, quite visible uh, injuries. But the chemical weapons victims that I met here in The Hague this week, their injuries are often much less visible. They're respiratory illnesses, needing lung transplants, always feeling like they've got sand in their eyes, 
immune system disorders, cancers, there's some very significant health concerns that they face. And then it's this generational suffering as well, where the psychological burden of what grandparents and parents went through is also picked up by the children and the grandchildren. So that's another part where I think it would be good to see more discussion about the needs of victims of chemical weapons within the kind of major parts of the convention by the states rather than in the side events and off down the corridors. And, you know, it it really wasn't quite as central and present, but really quite striking for me as my first participation in such a meeting. Well, Mary, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts.